Welcome to this modern education podcast that explores learning from the everyday exchange of thoughts and ideas to the theories and practices behind entire systems. Think education is cool? So do we. So we pair two conversations, learn about our guests, then learn from our guests, share your takeaways, and come back for more. You're listening to Think, Pair, Share with me, Audrey Scott. Today, I welcome Nika Dessa, Assistant Professor and Senior Associate Director for Research, Evaluation, and Learning at the Global Center for the Development of the Whole Child in the Institute for Educational Initiatives at the University of Notre Dame. Dr. Dessa is a developmental psychologist with over a decade of experience as an education technical advisor and applied researcher, where his work focuses on social-emotional learning, teacher well-being, and the role of play in low-resource and fragile contexts. He views himself as a youth advocate and prevention scientist, and his easy laugh and hopeful outlook offer an encouraging entry to the vital work he is doing around the world in the service of others. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome Nickit to Think, Pair, Share. Hi, Nickit. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. Thanks for having me, Audrey. It's lovely to be here. Uh, I'm so glad we got a, a chance to organize this. I know you're, you're in D.C., correct? Yeah, so I live just outside of D.C. In, in Virginia, but I tell everyone I live in the D.C. area. How do you like DC? I love living in DC. I, I really enjoy it. And you have not lived in South Bend, but you visit quite often. I do visit quite often, but unfortunately, I haven't lived in South Bend yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's your bucket list. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's such a gorgeous campus and, and the buildings are beautiful and just the way it's laid out. So I do enjoy visiting. I know that I'm spoiled with it, but I do think it's one of the more beautiful campuses around. So um, okay, <laughs> we're we'll both a little biased. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think so too. I think so too. Okay. And on that score, I think we're all sort of honorary Irish people when we are affiliated in some way with Notre Dame. So our fun questions, since we're in the month of March, it's maybe a no brainer, but I'm going to do a Irish slash St. Patrick's Day theme. Um, so th- <laughs> <All right. laughs> thanks for bearing with us. Let, <laughs> let's go for it. I've been learning a lot, uh, even uh, researching these. So. Uh, I'll try my so, best. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm not sure if this is our wheelhouse, but we'll go for it. Yeah, um, yeah. Okay. First, uh, a couple of true or falses. St. Patrick used the shamrock as a metaphor for the Holy Trinity when he was first introducing Christianity to Ireland. Uh, true. Do you know that? Or are you just guessing? No, I'm just I'm kidding. Just guessing. <laughs> it sounds true. So it is true. Or oh, at least, good. yes, at least by uh, Irish lore, I guess. I, I'm not sure if we can really fact check this. Apparently it's not to be confused with the four leaf clover. The shamrock is the three leafed shamrock. I'm learning something right now, Audrey. <laughs> <laughs> I think if nothing else, they're fun little things to think about, I suppose. But yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Okay, so true or false, St. Patrick wasn't Irish. False? I don't know. <laughs> I'm just guessing now, Audrey. False. I know. I'm going to say it with a lot of authority. False. I'm sorry that I tricked you on that one. He was not Irish. He was from Great Britain. He oh, okay. was, um, I think he was kidnapped and taken to Ireland and then got back and then went back on his own volition and, and helped teach them about Christianity, but, oh, okay. uh, 
<laughs> See, we really are learning a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hope um, in, the, in the comments section for the podcast, people can come in and fill in a bunch of information. That's a great idea. I love that. Okay, great. Um, I'll have to peek back and see. They're, they're, they're like, how dare you trick him? This is supposed to be the fun section. <laughs> I'm, I'm having fun, so yeah. Okay, good, good, great. Um, thanks for your good sense of humor. So one more true and false. Uh, okay. Ireland is the only country in the world to have a musical instrument as its national symbol. I don't know if it's the only country, but I do know they have it as a national symbol. So I'm going to say false because it feels like in 192 countries, there's probably another that has a musical instrument as a national symbol. I will say this. There's going to be a chance to get bonus points because it really is the only one, but you sound like you know which one it is. So bonus points if you can tell me what instrument it is. I don't know what it's called, but I believe it's the hand drum. I think it's a harp. Oh, is it the harp? I guess so. I'm like thinking of a bottle of Guinness. And I think that might be a harp on there, but I'm not sure. I think there is. You're, you're going to get so many comments on this podcast, Audrey. Just wait. Hey, I hope we do. I hope we do. Um, okay, so we're done with the true or false. That was a little tricky to, to make you sort of answer on your own, but these are just what, you, what you'd rather. So I think this is the easier section. Yeah. <laughs> Corned beef and cabbage or shepherd's pie? Oh, corned beef and cabbage. Great deal. Yeah. My, yeah, my mom and dad love that. Green beer, Guinness, or neither? Oh, uh, I would say neither. I don't get the fascination with green beer. I'm sorry to everyone out there. Uh, and I, I enjoy Guinness now and then, but I'm not terribly fascinated by it. <laughs> no, I hear you. Which would you prefer, the Emerald Isle or the Emerald City? Ooh, probably the Emerald Isle. Is it too far afield to do a Wizard of Oz reference? <laughs> it's the only other emerald I could think of. Okay, Chicago River being turned green or the London Eye being turned green? The London Eye, because that would just be so much simpler than the Chicago River being turned green and probably much more environmentally conscious as well, but yeah. I did. I used to live in Chicago and I think they use some kind of vegetable die but it is awfully electric green it does seem quite odd <laughs> oh my gosh okay you two van morrison or the dubliners you two definitely you two this one is an easy one for me i actually saw them at notre dame back in the day so it's fun oh, I, <laughs> I saw them in person at a bookstore at a signing in dublin stop <laughs> yeah in 2006 i believe you went for sure. <laughs> oh my gosh. I would love to be that close. It would be so, I don't know. That seems crazy. Just at a bookstore. They, they were signing their, I think it was their biography. Love it. Oh my yeah. gosh. Awesome. Okay. Did you get their autographs? Oh no. The line was way too long. <laughs> I yeah. saw them, but not more than that. Yeah. That's good enough. And last but not least, which are you more apt to find a four leaf clover or a leprechaun? <laughs> depends on where you are but i believe it would be a four-leaf clover they're not actually that rare it's just harder to see and find but yeah i feel like around here maybe a leprechaun's easier but maybe the only place in the world so yes <laughs> i will be on campus next week for saint patrick's day uh, which until very recently i didn't realize that saint patrick's day fell kind of in the middle of lent most often which i, I I still don't understand, like having grown up Catholic and I, we don't, we don't have St. Patrick's Day in India, but it still doesn't make sense to me. But 
maybe someone can explain that to me when I'm up at Notre Dame. <laughs> yes, we shall do our best to find the real answer. I, I don't know if this is true, but I think they picked it because I think he might have passed away on this date. So I don't think that oh, they could. Okay. That might yeah, be yeah, the yeah. Uh, immovable time that, that this happened to happen. But we shall get to the bottom of this at some point. Thank you so much for your kind sense of humor uh, oh, yeah. for going, going through those with us. A couple more fun things if I could ask. You play cricket? Uh, yes. I don't play cricket right now. I don't really have many opportunities to play cricket right now, but I grew up playing cricket. So I played cricket through, through all of my childhood and into my youth. Uh, so, yeah. That, that's, a, that's a sport I know nothing about. It's not, it's not as popular here in the States. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the best way to explain it is it's, it's like baseball, except you don't have to run every time you hit the ball. And instead of a diamond, you just play it on kind of a, a straightaway, so a, rec- a rectangle instead of a, a diamond. I think that's super cool. I, I'd love to see it. You have to you have to decide on which uh, how, how invested you want to be, Audrey, because there's the five-day game, which is literally five days. There's the, the one-day game, which is like six hours, and then there's the three-hour game. So I would start with probably the three-hour and then work your way up to the five-day game. But the five-day games are fun just because there's like tea and, and, and sandwiches in the middle, and uh, it's like a relaxing five days to spend with friends at a cricket ground like lazing on the green watching cricket oh i had no idea that actually sounds really nice a five day like do people do that a lot is that uh, i think it used to happen much more but but now i think we we're so used to much like quicker gratification yeah. uh, and so like the the three hour game is really in my sense it's it's been done to kind of bring in more people because people wanted more kind of quick immediate mm-hmm. gratification from the game so it's almost like if you take baseball uh, and instead of nine innings you're saying we're just going to make it let's say three innings but we're going to change some of the rules so that runs come a lot easier right so uh, okay um so similar to that Sounds like a maybe a good idea. I don't think we're going to win any baseball fans because I do think uh, definitely would, won't. <laughs> be very upset if we start tweaking that game, but but it sounds really cool. So, how did you? Can I ask? Become interested? Is that the the most popular sport? Well, so yeah. So I I grew up in India, and it it was never a question. I don't think it wasn't something where you're like, I have to choose sports. It's just like you played cricket, uh, especially as as a boy or a male growing up in India. And growing up in my community, it was cricket and, and football or, or soccer. Uh, mm-hmm. And so normally it was soccer on the beach and cricket on the on the school playground. And so it's 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 fun. It was a lot of fun playing. Oh, I'd love to try it at least once, but never say never. Yeah. <laughs> I know that you've been obviously you've lived a lot of places and done a lot of things, but but help us understand a little bit of how you got interested in developmental psychology and what brought you to now be at Notre Dame. I grew up in Bombay in India and for the last two years of high school, I was lucky enough to get kind of a scholarship to go to an international school in India itself. Uh, and as part of that experience, we had to do a capstone project. And that capstone project for me ended up being one in human geography, uh, where I went back home to Bombay and worked with some friends and acquaintances who lived at a, at a small slum or shanty settlement near my home. And we worked together to figure out how we could make that space more Uh, like humanize it so that the houses were more comfortable like how would the sewer system work how would the roads work and it was a wonderful project and I still remember all about and I talk about it because it was this very influential thing for me to be able to partner with folks who live in that that slum and and design this with them and it did really well and I got an A Um, but 
as a 17-year-old, something felt wrong and I couldn't figure out why. I couldn't articulate what was wrong with that. And I think over the years, as I've done more work in like the international development sector, partnered with more, more communities and youth and adolescents, especially on work, I've realized that the reason why that experience has sat with me for so long and, and has affected me so much is because it felt very extractive. It was a great relationship I had with my friends and, and the folks that I worked with in that community. But in the end, I was the only one who benefited from that experience, right? I, I got the A, I got the progress in my career, but nothing went back to the community. And so I think that experience has really shaped how I tend to approach thinking about how we can, we can do research and how we can work with communities that are more generative rather than extractive. And that led to me kind of doing a lot more work in the international development sector. After university, I worked with international development organizations as an adolescent development counselor, as an educator, as a grant writer. And through all of that work, one thing that I started to see over and over and over again was that there were these groups of children or groups of adolescents that I were working with who were doing a lot better than I would have expected, doing a lot better than their peers who'd had similar experiences. They were quote unquote resilient, right? And to some extent, uh, either academically, they were doing really well, socially, they were doing really well. Some of them were entrepreneurs and had started a small business. And so I was really intrigued by why, what is it about them? What is it about their, their situation that allows them to do that? Uh, and what can we learn from them to be able to, to develop either programs or approaches that might help other children, other adolescents? That work inspired me to come back to grad school and study resilience to try and better understand what that looks like. As I was doing my doctorate, I had an opportunity to, to work uh, at a charter school for adolescents who had previously either had to drop out or had been expelled from a high school because of behavioral or social issues. So for a lot of them, this charter high school was seen as kind of the last option before they might have to do a GED if they, if they wanted to move in that direction. Uh, and a lot of them had brought with them a lot of the experiences that they had, primarily of, of witnessing or experiencing physical or sexual or emotional abuse in their families, in their communities, in their broader neighborhoods. And the first semester of that course was basically for the seniors to write out the experiences that they'd been through and how that affected where they were currently. And in the second semester, we would kind of make a future plan. So what do you want to do next? Do you want to go to a community college? Do you want to start your own little business? Do you want like, what, what's your next step? And how does like your trajectory from where you are affect where you want to go? And that work in that school has been very influential for me because I think even though academically we, we know that resilience is not just a trait, right? It's, it's something negotiated. It's something that's, that's about the person, but about the person in their setting. That became very, very clear and apparent to me in that senior seminar, in working at that school, in working with those adolescents and, and helping them write those narratives and try and understand how they made meaning of what they'd experienced and how they were negotiating where they wanted to go. That negotiation that they were doing was not a negotiation about my individual skills or my individual competencies or my individual abilities. It was about me, about them in 
their settings, in their families, in their relationships with a loved one or with a significant other, with a relationship with the child that they just had, with a relationship within their community, within the health services, within the education services. That was a negotiation that they were going through. And that's where their resilience lied. It lay in that negotiation that they were constantly doing. And so for me, that has been very influential because my work and why I've moved in this direction is really trying to understand how we see developmental psychology, how do we see work with adolescents and children really as this negotiation that they're doing of their own resilience within these settings, right? So taking kind of a whole child development approach to this work. And then I think the last thing is, is for several years before I joined the University of Notre Dame, I worked with practitioners, so educators, administrators, principals in education programs, both formal and non-formal around the world. Over and over again, the thing that came up is people would say, we shouldn't make it so academic, right? That was the tagline, right? So academic was seen as, as synonymous with technical and hard to understand, right? Yeah. And for <laughs> me, that, that, that is so telling that we have these different silos of this is practice and this is academic. And really, I think these three things, right, how do we do this work so that it's generative and not extractive, trying to understand kind of resilience in this whole child development perspective of the settings that children and adolescents are trying to negotiate, and really trying to do work that's focused on, on what best supports practitioners. Like that's, I think, what drew me to the Global Center for the Development of the Whole Child. When the center was first being set up, so I started when the center was just about like a proposal. Uh, and Neil approached me about and Neil Booth be the director of the center. And we had this long conversation about this. And what I saw was that he reflected those very same things that I was working towards. And so it became this kind of the symbiotic thing where we were working towards the same goals. And so it was really cool in some sense to be able to set up a center where we could focus on that, right? An academic center that's focused on whole child development, the center being based within the Institute for Educational Initiatives makes so much sense to me because that's the focus of IEI. It's about working with principals and teachers and, and training them, but also working with them in their careers, working with practitioners to make sense of how this research, how this quote unquote academic technical thing actually works yeah. when you're standing in front of 30 odd students trying to teach them math or trying to teach them science, right? And so for me, that's what's meaningful is being able to do that work and being a researcher trying to do that translation. And so that's what brought me to the center and to IEI. What a wonderful feeling, though, to feel like you found somebody that gets it. Yeah. yeah. That, that's great. And we are so lucky yeah. to have you here. Now, you have two streams of your research. Can you tell us a little bit about those? When I talk about these kind of two streams of work, I think of the focus on, on measurement as one stream, measuring children's social emotional skills, well-being, both in children and adults. And the other stream is much more focused on programs and practitioners and trying to understand whether programs are working for children, why, how, and how can we change them. And so if we think about this kind of first stream around measurement, I think the, the biggest caveat that I always give people is that I'm not a psychometrician, right? I'm a developmental psychologist who kind of fell into measurement by mistake. And, and the, the story behind it is that in 2015, I was working for Save the Children, which is a nonprofit international NGO. And I was in charge of a small research team that was meant to build evidence about education programs in emergencies. 
Uh, and what we realized was there were a lot of save the children education programs that were focused on social emotional learning, but there wasn't like a concise way of measuring it or an easy way for different programs around the world to measure social emotional learning. So we did a big scoping and we mapped out all of the skills and competencies that save the children's programs were focused on different ministry criteria, all of that. And we came up with like a bucket of eight or nine skills and competencies. And then we were like, okay, let's find measures to measure that. Uh, so we went to the web and did what you should never do, which is Google, uh, social emotional skills, primary <laughs> grades. And there are hundreds, there are hundreds of measures. But the challenge that we faced was that most of those measures were developed in high resource contexts, right? Well, primarily in the US, which is fine. But oftentimes the way the skills were described don't always translate well to a low resource or emergency context. Right, especially skills that are socially normed and the, the behavioral manifestation of those skills depend on the context where you live. Right. So then measuring them necessitates kind of a more contextual understanding of those skills. And also back in 2015, there were there were lots of subscription services for these for these measures, right? You had to pay to use them. Mm. And you couldn't adapt them a lot. That, that's changing now, but there was like such strong copyrights that you couldn't change the tools in any way, which is really hard to take a tool that was developed in the US and then say, I'm going to use it in Thailand or Bangladesh without changing much besides translating it. So we decided to develop our own tool. And so over three years, we went through a process of like in 10 different countries, testing out different items, crashing and burning and rising from the, the ashes again, hopefully, uh, at, at trying different things. And we ended up developing the, the International Social Emotional Learning Assessment, the ICELA, which measures five different social emotional learning competencies. It's been used by several different organizations now. And so that's how I kind of got into this measurement area. And through that work, one, one thing that I realized was that there was still an appetite in the sector to develop more context-specific social emotional learning measures. And so right now what we're doing is we're partnering with USAID on supporting holistic and actionable research and education activity. It's called the SHARE activity. It's one that we partner with the Polte Institute uh, at Keogh at, at, at Notre Dame uh, to do this work with USAID, where in four countries, so Liberia, Honduras, Haiti, and Colombia, we're working with teachers, children, and students to understand what they mean by social emotional learning. How do they define these skills? How do they rank them? And then kind of using those narratives, using that information to actually develop a measure of social emotional learning and then testing it out to see if it works. Uh, we're also doing the same thing for teachers' well-being, right? Mm -hmm. We're trying to understand like, how do teachers define their occupational well-being? What's important to them in their occupation and using their words to develop a measure. So that's the kind of broader like measure development stream, which is really trying to kind of marry like the quantitative pieces of, of rigor and reliability and validity with much more of the qualitative work around kind of understanding these skills and using that understanding to develop the measure. So that's kind of one stream. And then the other stream of work is much more focused on programs and how do they work? Why do they work? Do they work? Uh, and working with practitioners on that. Um, and, and in that stream, we're trying to do a lot of different things. It depends on where the program or the intervention is. So in the early stages of an intervention, kind of during the pilot of the, while we're designing something, we're working a lot more on kind of understanding the nuts and bolts, the mechanisms. 
uh, and doing short surveys to see, are we moving in the right direction? Not big impact evaluations, just short, iterative, rapid studies. And one example is a project in Haiti that we did with colleagues called Allo Mama, which means hello, mother. And at the start of the, the pandemic, a lot of the mothers in the communities where we were working mentioned their disengagement from their community, and they didn't like that, right, because of shutdowns. Mm -hmm. So we started a project where we had a few trained colleagues call a group of mothers every week to just check in. How are you doing? Hello, mother. How are you doing? Mm -hmm. This was just a few mothers, so about 60 mothers. And we had a small comparison group, and we did a stress survey with the mothers. We did a survey about their levels of stress. And what we saw is we expected the levels of stress for mothers who were getting the phone calls to go down. Mm -hmm. But we actually saw that the level of stress went up, what? right? And, and so this was a big like stop, pause, let's like think about this moment for our team because it meant like we needed to figure out what was going on. So we went and talked to the mothers and found out that they liked the phone calls, but they were feeling frustrated that it wasn't connecting them to more resources. Mm -hmm. So they felt like they were voicing concerns, but it wasn't going anywhere. So the next iteration of the program led us to kind of connect mothers to more resources, which led to more small studies, which led to a bigger kind of parent ambassador and parent training program, right? And so we can use research in kind of this iterative rapid cycle way to, to shine a light and say, if this is not working, we need to stop and, and change things. Don't just like power on. <laughs> So that's kind of one piece of work that we're doing. We're also looking at better trying to understand the perspectives of stakeholders, parents, teachers in the programs itself. Do they think that these programs are having an impact on their lives? Mm -hmm. Because in the end, we want these programs to be adopted and, and embedded within the communities, whether it be a parent training, a teacher training, an early childhood development program. We want communities to, to take them up. But if they don't believe that these programs are effective, they're not going to do it. So we're working on kind of much more qualitative research to understand, do they think that these programs work and have an effect? And then the last is broader kind of experimental and non-experimental impact evaluations, randomized control trials where we might have a treatment and control group. But we get to that stage only after we've been through all of this kind of development, rapid iteration phases, right? Uh, and I think a lot of times in the education sector right now, there's a race to get to the RCT. There's a race to get to the randomized control trial. While I think the more important piece are like the much more development pieces that are that need to happen earlier on. When you do something like, I'm not saying it with the nice accent and yeah. hello, hello, mama, hello, yeah. mother. How rewarding is that to have a relatively quick turnaround to say, hey, this isn't, this isn't working. I wish Allo Mama wasn't so much of a unique example in our sector. I wish that was more standard practice to do those rapid cycle learning checks and actually see if you're moving in the right direction. So it was a little disheartening, of course, for some on the team who'd worked on the project, but I think it was rewarding for the team as a whole to realize, okay, we have a process where we can question whether we're heading in the right direction and change things based on that. Yeah. I think the bigger challenge for us is us. We're, we're still controlling the rapid cycle. We're still controlling the, the learning, right? How do we get principals? How do we get stakeholders in the communities to adopt this process of learning so that they can make those decisions and we can be taken out of the system, right? That's the goal. The goal is that we are not needed. The goal is that like the system can do this, 
for me, that's still the challenge is how can we make sure that it's better embedded within the Haitian education system or the, the partners that we work with in Haiti so they can make those decisions themselves? You talk yourself out of a job? I'm fine with that. <laughs> that's my goal. <laughs> I love it. Okay. I wonder how social emotional learning factors into your work. You can think about social emotional learning as as your ability to understand and manage your own feelings and emotions, right? And then understand feelings and emotions in other people and use that information to have strong relationships, healthy relationships with people, and then use that internal knowledge and external knowledge to, to build relationships, but also make responsible decisions in your community. As a broad paradigm, that's social-emotional learning. And the way sometimes I think about social-emotional learning is through a children's book called The Seven Blind Mice, right? And I think a lot of people know the story, is there are these seven blind mice who go down to the river, I believe, and, and they they come upon something and they all scurry in different directions and they go explore what it is and then they come back. And one of them says, oh, it's a huge rope. And another says, no, it's a tree trunk. And the third says, no, it's a wall. And another says, it's a snake. And they're all exploring the elephant, but they're exploring it from different perspectives, from different angles. And I think partly the challenge right now in the sector is we're all exploring the same elephant but from different perspectives. So some people call it social emotional learning, others call it life skills or soft skills or 21st century skills or non-cognitive skills. There's so many different terms. I think the more important thing is for us to, to understand the importance of the social and emotional domains in children's lives, as well as the academic domain in, in education in schools. So for a long time, especially in the global South, there's been so much focus on literacy and numeracy. Like children need to be able to read at a grade three reading level, and they need to be able to do basic numerical functions and operations. That's great, but they're also developing in societies, in communities that need them to have these social and emotional skills. Right. So there's, there's this change now in the global education sector from seeing kind of the priorities of education as not just basic literacy and numeracy, but also social and emotional skills, right? Developing these skills within this environment and, and developing them for themselves, I think, is important. But there's ample evidence that they also affect academic skills. So having strong social emotional skills can have an impact on children's literacy and numeracy. Um, and especially in emergencies, in, in emergency context, the focus on social emotional learning has become more and more important because of all of the evidence that has been generated in the US that social emotional learning and those skills are important for children in the context of adversity, especially. So there has been more of a focus of that on that in emergencies. Now, the tricky piece is we still don't have enough evidence from those emergency contexts about social emotional skills. We know how it functions in the US. We have a lot of information from high resource contexts. There's still a huge gap in the literature about social emotional learning in, in low resource and crisis contexts. Are they important? How do they work? We're still trying to build that evidence. Um, but I think there's a lot of focus on it right now, primarily because we're getting closer and closer to kind of defining it, to understanding it as a sector and realizing its importance in the lives of children. A couple follow-ups to, to that. In your day-to-day -day work, how does that manifest itself? How do we understand different types of skills, specifically around well-being for children, adolescents, and even adults? And in terms of the, the practitioners that I work with, 
one of the things that's very apparent is a lot of these measures are too technical for them, right? So if, if we're talking about social emotional skills for, for children, sometimes we end up measuring anger dysregulation or hostile attributional bias or peer victimization. What does that actually mean for a teacher? How do they translate anger dysregulation into practice? How do they translate hostile attributional bias into practice, right? Mm -hmm. That guidance isn't there. Yeah. And so for me, that translation is important. It's, it's one thing to be able to measure hostile attributional bias. It's a completely different thing to then say, okay, this is what we've learned from measuring that. And this is what we think we should do in terms of programming, in terms of how you approach children in your classroom or what you do in kind of a non-formal educational setting. Mm -hmm. so, so I think that is the translation that's missing. And, and we haven't figured it out. I haven't figured it out, right? It's not <laughs> like I have the magic formula, but, but it's something that we're trying to work towards is, is really trying to figure out how do we translate that really for practitioners and for people who actually will be able to directly affect children's lives. Thank you. That's actually very helpful. Yeah. And then if you think about a, like a teacher in an emergency crisis, right? Like if you have a teacher who's working either in a refugee camp, who's working in a setting where you have children who are in your classroom for many different identities, right? From kind of internally displaced refugee identity, uh, they might have different language identities as well. A lot of them might not speak the language. And then the teacher themselves have their own identities. Teachers themselves might have been displaced as well. So you're, you're trying to request or ask this teacher who has very limited support and training and is going through a lot themselves in terms of their own displacement, their own identities, to work with this diverse group of children who are like really there, they really want to learn, but they have a lot going on in their lives in terms of their own kind of linguistic displacement, maybe even ethnic identities that are affecting how they learn. That is a really hard negotiation for a teacher. That's a really hard thing for teachers to do. Uh, and I don't just mean teachers in a formal setting. It's a facilitator in a non-formal setting. It might be a, a counselor in a, in a child-friendly space. There's a lot of different quote-unquote teachers and th those roles. And I think one thing that, that we're trying to work towards is how do we ensure that the teachers themselves in those settings are doing well, that they have the support that they need and they feel that they can approach this task that's ahead of them. Mm -hmm. okay. How do you keep from feeling overwhelmed? <laughs> it is it is hard, especially like right now is hard because of, of the crisis in Ukraine, obviously. It is, it is hard, but... I go back to a lot of the experiences I've had. Um, so pre-pandemic, I did travel a lot and I worked directly with teachers and with children. And for me, those experiences are what keep me going because their lives continue. They're continuing to grow and hopefully flourish. And anything that we can do to help in, in terms of translating research and knowledge or helping practitioners work with children, I think is helpful in that sense. So, so that's what keeps me going is, is all the stories that I have from that and the experiences that I've had in those settings. Uh, and, and it's not, I have a hard time articulating this sometimes, but, but even devoid of us, there's a lot going on, right? So, so one thing that I remember is uh, in terms of we were, we were working to develop a measure of children's self-concept. Uh, in a in a Zatri refugee camp in the Zatri refugee camp in in Jordan, which was primarily for Syrian refugee children, uh, and we were measuring self concept, which is this idea of children's understanding of themselves, their their strengths, the, their their limitations. Do they they know themselves? Um, and the measure was just not working, 
right? We were trying to develop this measure to evaluate this program and the measure was just not working. And we sat down with teachers and they were like, you're measuring the wrong thing, right? They said, it's, it's not about them knowing who they are. The, 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 the struggle that these children are having is, is figuring out who they will be tomorrow, who they will be in five days, who they will be in, in a year. The struggle that they're having is about kind of their future orientation. They, have, they, they really don't know where they can even go and that's affecting where they are right now. And so we changed our way of measuring self-concept in that measure based on teachers' reflections that really what we needed to be doing is looking at future orientation, is how children expressed their future and whether they could even envision or imagine this future self for themselves. And so really, like I think it is about valuing the fact that teachers have a wealth of knowledge but are we able and, and in these kind of donor cycles that we have of our programs, able to, to incorporate it into the work that we're doing in that way, in a way that, that values and looks at their lived experience as a valuable point of information for these programs or these measures that we're working on? It sounds like you had a really good relationship with them so that there was lots of input. Is that a norm? Is that integral? I think it's integral, but it's not the norm, right? So, so in a lot of places, it depends on who you're working through and how you work with teachers. So, so we tend to try and partner with organizations or with the ministry that already has a certain program or a certain relationship with teachers. And that partnering affects what you can do. So a lot of times when, for example, we're, we're currently working with the Lego Foundation, we're working to develop a, a formative measure for uh, teachers' use of play in the classroom. So we're doing that in Colombia, Bangladesh, and Uganda. And what we're trying to do is understand how do teachers use play to support children's learning in the classroom? And what do children think about this? And we, we, we're trying to use all of that information to develop a formative assessment that teachers can use in the classroom to improve their practice, a reflective tool for teachers. But the challenge with that is, in a lot of contexts, Entering information or data is seen as an evaluation that might affect teachers' salary, teachers' contracts, teachers' performance appraisal in a system. So how do we get teachers to do reflection and be honest and enter data and information when the setting within which we're collecting that data treats data and information given by teachers as an evaluative act, right? So. Yeah. So it's one thing to say we want the information from teachers and want to use it. It's another thing to say we have to understand the context within which teachers are, are being asked for this information. Yes. Right. Gosh. And so it, we have to be aware of, of not just like a relationship with the teacher, but a relationship with the teacher in the context of the school, in the context of the system within which they're working. Wow. It just keeps getting more complicated, but... <laughs> <laughs> but but that's such a good point. It is realistic to think that they are also in a system that they need to navigate. Yeah, yeah. How important is that relationship of trust? It's a lot about who we partner with yeah. and, and what their relationship is with teachers as well. So, so generally in most of the context, me, myself, like I am not partnering directly with the teacher. It's, it's working with, for example, we have partners in Uganda who have established relationships with, with teachers and relationships of trust with, with the teachers. And so we, we try and work through those relationships, one, because they're already established, but two, we also know it, it helps teachers 
be more honest of their experience uh, and even children if we can if we can work through systems that they already understand and they work, we work with partners that they already have trust with so so trust does does play a very big role um but it's it's not just about trust so i'm going to make this even more i'm going <laughs> to add even more complexity to this it's it's about trust but it's also about kind of positionality right it's about like who i am as a researcher from the global north mm-hmm. uh going with kind of the Notre Dame um, aura behind me to to a refugee camp or to to a school in Uganda and saying I want to collect data like we have to question that mm-hmm. and I remember when when this was a long time ago right after I finished undergrad I received a fellowship to to work on an ethnography of, of street children and I went to four different countries to collect this data and I was in, in the Fiji Islands for a while at one point, I realized I was going through my notes one evening. The information I was getting was a little too good. Mm. It was a little too clear and a little like I started to question, like, why am I getting the same stories, the same reflections, the same thing again and again? Yeah. And the next day I decided I'm not going to take my notebook with me. I'm not going to take any notes in the field. I'm just going to go out and spend some time with with the kids. And I'll take notes when I finish at the end of the day. And things change dramatically, the information that I got. The the very act of taking notes and having a notebook in front of me changed how they approached me, the position between me and them, right? They saw me as a researcher. So I think similarly, like in a lot of the work that I've done previously, the data that we collect depends on trust, but it also depends on how we position ourselves as researchers, how we position ourselves as practitioners in the communities where we work. If we show up to a community uh, in a branded van with a branded vest and a branded notebook and say, what do you think of this program that is being provided through this branded organization? Of course, you're going to hear this really rosy picture. Right. And so I think it's it's not just questioning like the trust that you have, but also the position and the positionality that you have in terms of who you are right. and what your position of power is in comparison to the partners that you have and the communities that you, you work besides. Are you excited about upcoming partnerships, current partnerships? I know that you have the Lego Foundation. Can you tell us more about that? I'm excited about a lot of the, the work that we're doing. So with the Lego Foundation, we're specifically working, there's, there's two different projects. One of them is called Play and Learning in Children's Eyes, the Palace Project. And that's the project where we're working with teachers and children in three countries, Colombia, Uganda, and Bangladesh, to understand how play is used in the classroom and what teachers perceive as the role of play to support children's learning in the classroom, what do children view as, as the role of play. Uh, and then using that information to develop a formative assessment that teachers can use in the classroom to improve their practice. At the same time, we're also developing a qualitative research protocol where we can continue to collect data from children about their perceptions of play. So it's a much more formative tool development process. So that's that's one project. And the other is specifically focused on our work in Haiti, uh, where we received funding from the Lego Foundation after the August 14th earthquake to work on a resilience project in a, a specific department called NIP in the south of Haiti that had been affected by the August 14th earthquake. I love the idea of Legos and studying play. When you say play, what does that kind of mean in the context of this project? I think this is part of the challenge, right? Play is is so much. It is is such a encompassing thing. I have I have a toddler. Play is everything for her right now. It's everything that she do is 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 seen in the light of play. 
um, or seen in kind of that lens. So I think when we think about play, we're specifically the, the way the Lego Foundation talks about, it, and I think it's it's a good kind of paradigm to think about is, is five dis different characteristics, right? Is is the activity joyful? Are you having fun, basically? Is it is it iterative? Are you able to build on, on previous experience within the activity or beyond the activity that you're doing? Uh, does it have personal meaning, right? Is it meaningful? Are you able to like connect to what you're doing? Uh, is it socially active or interactive? So are you actually having the opportunity to work with others or, or, or not? Sometimes you might just be doing something by yourself. Uh, and then is it actively engaging? Are you constantly kind of in the zone, so to say, in, in the work that you're doing? So those are kind of the characteristics of play. And then there are different ways to think of kind of play facilitation in the classroom, right? There's a, there's a broad spectrum uh, where it goes from free play, which is children defining very, very child-centered, where children have the, the kind of autonomy to decide what they want to do and go ahead and do it, to kind of guided play in the middle of the spectrum, which is much more kind of a, a relationship with the teacher suggesting what to do and the child making a decision with maybe more teacher-directed activities, right? Which might be a game that the teacher suggests and, and organizes and the children participate. Uh, all of those have value in different types of lessons and in different places in the classroom and in, in the curriculum. What we're trying to study is, is how teachers and children approach that, if they do, and, and what is seen. And what we're finding is in the context where we're working, it's primarily teacher-directed play, right? Because if you think of a classroom, for example, in Uganda, a teacher is standing in front of anywhere between 50 to 100 children. Doing free play in that environment might not work well for teachers. It might be too hard for teachers to control what's happening in the classroom. So they might have to have more direction and more control, right? So it's not just about use guided play or use free play in these contexts. It's about use them in specific situations, but also consider what the setting is around the teacher. Interesting. Are you using Legos? So they don't provide Lego and we're not, we're not actually studying the use of Lego in the classroom. We're studying broadly the use of play. Meaning we, we know there is an educational element to play, right? There, there, it, there is a value to it. It's been happening for centuries since time began. Children have been playing. Adults play too. We've all been playing and we learn through it, right? Um, it, it's just about figuring out how, how do we articulate it and, and, conceptualize it in a way so that we can we can better support teachers, we can better suggest where and how it might be used in what context and in what forms. Great, thank you. Within the context of the IEI and ACE, the teacher well-being piece seems like it's something that might be applicable for this community, is it? I hope it is. Uh, so I think this is this is something that we're still working on is is trying to find more connections and more ways to collaborate across IEI. Uh, and so I think the teacher well-being work, we're, we're, we're at the end stages of it in Uganda and we're just starting it off in Colombia, Liberia, Honduras, Haiti. Uh, but I definitely think there's this, in terms of kind of methods, in terms of some of the tools that we develop might be useful for other folks in, in IEI as well. So we would definitely be open to a lot more kind of collaboration and learning across like different streams of work at IEI. You seem awfully positive and hopeful, even though the work seems like it could be very daunting. Are you hopeful? Oh, yeah. I am probably too optimistic, but I'm, I'm very hopeful. There are moments of, of depression in, in thinking about, not, about where 
we are in terms of a global community, especially in terms of our, the most vulnerable children, in terms of children who have been displaced, in terms of children living in refugee camps, in terms of children who are on the move right now. But I am very hopeful because I have seen kind of the impact of a lot of this work. I have seen children who have lived in refugee camps and have gone on to do amazing things in their communities. I think there's still a lot of work. That's why I'm not worried about, about talking myself out of the job. I wish, I wish we could talk ourselves out of a job because that would be the day where we know like that hope has actually paid out and we, we've accomplished that. So I think there's a lot of work to do, but I can't help but be hopeful because of all of the kids that I've worked with, of all of the adolescents, even after all that they've been through, they are still hopeful. They are still looking for that future, right? They're still trying to negotiate and find that future for themselves. So, so we have to be hopeful. We have to like have our hope accompany theirs. Oh my gosh. I'm hopeful right along with, with, with all of you. So we're just so happy to have you working on this and, and whatever we can do to support that and just know you have our gratitude for sure. But thank you so much for, for this conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, and- yeah. Thanks, Audrey. I, I had fun having this conversation and I hope it generates a lot of comments, not just about our bad knowledge about St. Patrick's Day, <laughs> but also about this work. And hopefully, hopefully there's more collaborations across IEI and the university for this kind of work. Oh, I'm, I'm hopeful for that too. Thank you so much. You, you have a good rest of your day and we'll talk soon. Perfect. Thanks, Audrey. And thank you all for joining us for Think, Pair, Share. If you enjoyed this episode, head on over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Check out our website at iei.nd.edu forward slash media for this and other goodies. Thanks for listening. And for now, off we go.